Hey, Zach. Hey, Jack. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. So, let's get right to it. Uh, we have another listener hand this week. Uh, first off, before we get into the hand, we really appreciate everyone continuing to write in. And although we can't you know, feature every hand on the podcast, uh, we want to feature as many as possible and continue to write in and comment. And, uh, and now on to the hand. So this hand took place uh, in China at a weekly home game at 1.30 a.m., and the stakes are approximately 1-2 in terms of dollars. Um, so the listener gave us a really good description on the main villain of this hand. He is a true lag who gives me lots of headaches. He's 30 years old. He has deep pockets. He's from a Middle Eastern country, has played much higher stakes in Macau, and his calling, limping, and raising ranges are much wider than mine. And he has a knack for crushing whales and tags alike. Him and I have played countless sessions and we take turns stacking locals and expats and occasionally each other. His favorite place to be is deep stack with a suited hand against a straightforward player. He often plays wide, linear ranges, rarely misses value, and picks pretty good spots and sizings to bluff. Despite his reputation, I don't think he bluffs enough when he's winning. He's a completely different and tilty player when he's losing, but he was up several thousand at the time of this hand. This guy's style is sticky and unorthodox, but his strengths usually make up for his many leaks and, quote, that's not in any poker book moves. <laughs> First off, I want to see the movie about this guy. <laughs> he sounds like a cool, interesting character. Yeah, well, at the very least, I, I think I'd like to play with this guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if he's a winner in one of these, like, soft home games, there's probably a lot of good spots to take advantage of this guy, uh, especially if he's not bluffing enough. Uh, when he's up, which is kind of the real headache causer from even like a not great lag where you kind of just have to call it off in in marginal spots. Uh, So if you can really know that a lot of time when he is stacking off, uh, he has the goods, then all the other kind of looseness and aggressiveness can really play into your advantage. Yeah, and, you know, when someone is used to running over the table with... uh a style that involves playing a very wide range. Uh, it's, you know, pretty easy often, especially if the, it's not a very, very good player, to counter that strategy and become a real problem for the guy. And that can be a profitable role to take on uh, in this type of game. Yeah, and it looks like they have some history. You know, he said uh, they stack locals and expats, but occasionally each other. So there's... You know, definitely some going to be some metagame to this hand before we even get into it. Uh, mm-hmm. And if 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 a player like this you have a lot of respect for, and it's a generally soft game, there's definitely something to avoiding them. But if he's playing a really wide range and is in a lot of pots, then it's sort of a, you know you're not able to avoid this type of player. So you might as well sort of take him head on uh, and have those sorts of plans going forward. Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far, and not necessarily saying that you're saying this, but of like targeting this guy, because he probably has more poker intelligence than everyone else at the table. Uh, but definitely don't avoid him in kind of close spots in the way you might do against like a real good winning reg. Yeah. Uh, so the hero describes himself as a big winner historically, playing a looser style than usual, and having shown a few big bluffs already. Uh, and he's on the button. The relevant players in this hand are the big blind, the Middle Eastern guy, 
Then the small blind is a local, and he's a moderate winner, very loose pre. That doesn't usually go hand in hand, but we'll take David at his word. <laughs> uh, and then uh, David's on the button, and he describes himself as a late 20s American. And then the cutoff has 250 behind, and he is a businessman who plays straightforward fit or fold poker. And then everyone else is a juicy mix of players looking to hit top pair who have between 160 and 500 behind. So first off, just great job, David, being very detailed. Uh, it definitely makes a big uh, difference giving us this level of information. Yeah, great player descriptions. So let's get to the preflop action. Uh, there's four limps to David on the button, and he sees 8-10 offsuit. So the, the four limps... Uh... He doesn't specify. Yeah, but it wouldn't be the main... Or, or either the villains yeah. in the blinds, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so the cutoff and then three other villains who are, I guess, the juicy players, as described. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think folding is terrible. It's a bad hand. But I think that given your position and your skill edge, I think that you can definitely justify raising here. Try to take, uh, sort of just squeeze... Uh, a squeeze line to take the pot down here and then be in position post-flop to take advantage of people's mistakes. Yeah, I, I think first off in this spot I'm never folding against a juicy mix of players and I'm on the button. Uh, while I don't love overlimping generally, I think this is a really good, good spot to overlimp with a wide range where you can pretty much play fit or fold post-flop and if you don't flop a monster draw or two pair plus you just kind of fold and don't worry about it. Because if this is the juicy mix of players who wants to hit top pair, they will likely stack off. You definitely have the implied odds uh, to call here. And even though the big blind is a lag, you have to think that he's you know checking the big blind enough to make this profitable. Especially because given David's description, I think it's unlikely that many of the other players are going to be folding their hands for what would be like a standard raise here. Uh, and David also indicated he's playing a looser style than normal and has shown bluffs already. So maybe, like, normally this might be a hand that I raise to, like, 12 to $16 at, like, a 1-2 game where I'm playing kind of, like, somewhat tight, super aggressive. Like a normal 1-2 game, this might be a raise to between 12 and $16. Uh, but it, in this game here, with the metagame as described... I think I'm always limping behind here, but can see a case for raising if your image was better and you kind of were sure that most of the villains uh, would fold to a raise like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm fairly confident just based on your description that a raise like that would not elicit much fold equity, so it wouldn't be the proper play in this spot. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I'm, I'm giving one, two players way too much credit to uh, fold in this spot. So I think living behind and just playing fit or fold is probably a pretty safe and profitable line. So that's what the hero in the hand does. So the small blind completes and the big blind, this Middle Eastern villain, raises to 10. And he does this regularly, but not with the sizing for the top of his range. Uh, and that seems you know pretty pretty clear to me that like, uh, even like an alright lag would know that he should raise to more than 10 in the spot to build up the pot with his value hands. 
So I think we can definitely take the top of his range out uh, when he makes a 10 here. I'm also a little surprised by the sizing just because he pretty much has no full equity in this spot from any of the players, given that there's, what, now there's five other people in the hand and he just makes a 10? Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've actually seen this type of line a lot, and I think what it really is, and this is probably going to shape my character, or my evaluation of this villain throughout the rest of the hand, is that uh, I think there are some players who like to gamble and don't like to see, you know, pots go six way with only twelve dollars in the pot, mm. and they'd rather just, you know, with pretty much their entire range, know that if they raise it to ten, then everyone will call and it'll go for sixty dollars to the flop, and that makes sense. If I mean, I don't think it makes sense to do it with as wide of a range as I'm guessing this people will do. It might not ever really make sense to make a raise that small, but I think that there is some there are some notions of logic in that if you are you know a more skilled player and play better for larger amounts you know don't shy away from big bets uh, even if they're not as big relative to the size of the pot so he might be leveraging his skill edge with this type of bet even though I think that uh, betting larger would you know accomplish that a lot better and probably he's doing it wider than I would do it uh, in his spot. Yeah, I think, I think the psychology of why a lot of players are doing this definitely checks out, and I think it can make a lot of sense for them because it, it's like more fun to kind of have a $60, $50 pot with their pseudo-connectors and their low pairs than to just kind of limp in, especially if they feel comfortable with the larger bet sizings. But I definitely don't think it's a good play in terms of EV... I think if he's going to be raising here and knowing that he can get called, he wants to kind of find that magical sizing where he's going to still get called by most players with hands that he's dominating. Uh, which I would guess here is probably at the low end 12 and probably closer to like 18. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I definitely think this is a bad play. Uh, I just think that the thought that he should be raising this in this spot wider than... Uh, you would in a game where you know everyone had sort of an equal skill edge is uh, savvy, it, even though the sizing sort of makes it clear that he might not be, even be thinking of it in those terms, and it's not going to work the way, uh, or it's not going to work as well as it would if you were betting larger. Yeah, cool. So what happens is the first two limpers fold, cutoff calls, hero calls on the button, small blind folds. And we're seeing a pot three ways uh, with $38. Uh, and the flop is the three of clubs, the seven of clubs, the nine of hearts. Hero has an open-ended straight draw. And the big blind bets $30, cutoff folds, and there is 640 effective. What are you doing here, Jack? Well, my first thought was to raise, just because I think that the... The preflop raiser has a really wide range here, uh, and we can probably fold it out a lot of air that we won't beat, uh, won't necessarily beat by the river. But I think that actually the range is still so wide, and this player is laggy that it might almost make more sense to just float this street and then make our play on the turn. Mm. Uh, I could I could definitely see 
that being more profitable uh, over the whole range of hands. I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not folding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I, th I think that's definitely a good uh, a good play depending on the board. I think against this villain specifically with the history that the hero and the villain have on a two two club board uh, with kind of two open ended straight draws possible with like the six eight and the ten eight. I think it's likely to get a lot less credit from a player. Maybe I'm giving too much credit to the to the big blind, but I think that if we call here, and then there's like a blank turn, we're not going to be getting much. Much respect for a raise there from a lot of players. We would because turn, you know, turn raises are often very strong, especially after a flat on the flop. But I think this player likely has enough skill to know that the hero in the spot is never. Uh, just flatting with 7-9 or any of his sets, which I, I don't think he should ever flat in this spot with them. So I think this is probably just a good spot to raise and to put pressure and set up a multi-street uh, bluff for some overpairs uh, to fold out all of his air that's beating us and to fold out you know some other middling hands that uh, have some equity but can't really stand a raise. Yeah, I, I forgot about the flush draw on the flop, and I definitely agree that it makes uh, setting ourselves up for a turn raise uh, a much worse play because there's so many more uh, bluffs in our range in that spot, and I think that this player is likely to pick up on that. However, I do think that you know this decision and so many other decisions uh make it clear why these sort of very generic descriptors of lag and tag generally don't have enough insight uh, to really inform decisions. You know, is this a lag who, you know, bets and bets and bets, but once they get raised, uh, really backs off? Or is this, you know, the sort of lag that would really think through a spot and, you know, if you take a line like that, becomes likely to call down with, you know, hands like ace high in all of their low pairs, you know, because we could make this a more exploitative line uh, with some marginal hands, you know, if that, if the converse were true. So, you know, having a more accurate read, or not more accurate, but a more detailed read, having a more detailed read can really help with decisions like this. I think uh, given the information I have about this villain and the way uh, the, the person writing in has described them, I would agree with you that because of the flush draw, it's not a good uh, play to float. So I would also erase. So, yeah, I think Jack is really showing how even with like a great description like David gave, uh, sometimes certain spots, like you really need to have a sense of like what they specifically do on different streets. Uh, with part of their range. And I think this shows the value of really paying attention observing at the table because if David has so much history with this player, uh, he probably has a sense of like what floating the flop and doing on a blank turn will look like to him and then what he will do consequently with his like marginal hands with some showdown value. Uh, but based on David's description, he seems kind of like a little bit of above average lag, you know, definitely not a pro, but someone who would probably be really happy to put him 
on a flush draw if he calls the flop and raises the turn even more so than might than the actual flush draw combos and that David might actually have. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably true based on the description we got, uh, and I I do want to commend David because I think that for a lot of poker players and for a lot of the poker situations you'll be in, being able to group people in these sort of broader categories is going to be helpful because it's rare that you're going to have an opportunity to, you know, play with people on a really, really regular basis, uh, especially people who might have a more sophisticated game uh, like this player. And not rare because there's definitely regs at every casino and, you know, the better players are the ones you're going to see more often. Probably. But I think especially in a game like this where it's a home game that runs every week and it's sort of probably the same set of faces uh, and you have a lot of history, I think it's probably at getting to a point where a more specific greed is really required. Yeah, so let's get back to the sizing. The pot's 38, uh, the villain c-bet's 30, and the cutoff folds. What are we making here? Well... And there's there's $640 behind. Well, I think one thing to consider is that probably any reasonable raise size, so at least like 2.25x, we're not really going to have a problem uh, getting our stack in if we turn a straight. Yeah. So that's not as much of a concern. I guess against this player, we're probably not looking to fold out uh, very many flush draws. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably don't have very much fold equity against flush draws. We have blockers to other straight draws, and I think uh, most of the straight draws we would want to fold out, we either have blockers to, or maybe don't have that much fold equity against, like our own hand, for example. So I think some of the hands that we definitely want to target are pairs lower than a 7. I'm not positive we'll be able to get any of those to fold against this player, but I think we should get a sizing where it's conceivable that uh, he would fold hands like 5s and 6s, and then definitely a sizing where he's going to be very reluctant to call with two over cards. Yeah. So I would probably make it 105. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in this spot, my kind of like default raising size on this board is about 3x. Um, and I can see arguments for going a little bit bigger. I definitely think we probably shouldn't go any smaller against a villain that's going to be a lot more likely to float out of position or, you know, play some of his draws aggressively. So yeah, I probably like, you know, 9,800 in this spot. So pretty much in agreement. And the hero is in agreement too. And he made it 90. Uh, and then the villain called. So now we go to the turn with 220 in the pot. And it's the two of clubs. Uh, putting the third club on the board. And uh, we said the villain had 810 offsuit. And the villain also has the eight of clubs, which is now a little bit irrelevant. Um, so the big blind checks, and, I mean, to me this seems like the perfect barreling card, you know. Mm-hmm. I think we can put a lot of pressure even on his overpairs here. Um, we can also really turn his hand face up, like if we, if we bet on the larger side here, I think when he just calls, he's doing it with maybe, like, the nuts that he's slow playing, and then hands that will fold to a river shove, unimproved. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So now it's just a question of sizing, and I, I really think on the turn here is where we kind of need to go larger, really represent the, f- the fact that we have a flush 
and I think this is a good spot to set up a profitable third barrel against some of his stickier hands like, you know, queens, kings, aces. Mm-hmm. I also think that if we bet closer to half pot, like a hand like tens or his pairs of nines or maybe um, like a straight draw is going to be a lot more likely to call or get fancy. Where if we bet something closer, and say probably like 180, 190, 200, uh, I think he's going to play very face up. You know, the only hand I can see him slow playing is like the nuts or the second nuts. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the relevant hands to this decision are going to be uh, turned flushes and turned flush draws. A lot of the turned flush draw hands probably involve a pair. Uh, just because I don't think that we can assume that he's going to be calling with, you know, two overs that often. And I don't think there's that many straight draws that would have picked up a club that would that would really feel that good, you know, about calling a turn bet anyway. Yeah. Uh, but with hands, with over pairs that he might have called with on the flop that have uh, a club, I mean, my thought is that it, it, it makes a lot of sense for him to just call with those. Uh, and then hopefully we can fold those out with a turn barrel. R- do, river barrel. Yeah, right, a river barrel. Um, I, I mean, do you think he's ever... I don't see why he would ever raise with those on the turn. To, no, yeah, even, even if it's like aces with the ace of clubs, like, this player is going to see no value in raising the turn. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that, yeah, probably regardless of sizing, whether it's closer to half pot or pot, like, all of those hands he's calling. Um, but, like, how often do you think he's, like, three-betting, you know, his suited aces with clubs or his, you know, king-high, queen-high flush draws? And how often is he just calling? I think with his nut flush draws, he's probably raising a lot. You know, hoping to get it in against, you know, maybe other unpaired, uh, or not necessarily get it in, but build pots against other unpaired flush draws, uh, put a lot of pressure on straight draws, and, you know, maybe get it in good against straight draws, and then, worst comes to worst, get it in with the nut flush draw, which is a terrible outcome. He has an interesting spot because they're both super deep. So, like, right. even, even if the big blind, like, three bets the flop to, like, 250, they're still, like, you know, he could still fold comfortably to a four bet with even some draws with equity, you know? Right. So it's, Well, that's actually what I... I'm actually seeing that as reasons that he might not three bet out of position with very many flush draws. Yeah, I don't think this player is, is ever really doing that. Uh, just based on the description, I think when he three bets the flop, he's like turning his hand face up and maybe occasionally has aces, but I think normally has seven nine plus and then just you know sets in that two pair combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so now, what do you think he's doing with all of his flush combos when he hits the flush draw combos on the flop when he hits the flush on the turn? I think a player like this is likely gonna be leading out a good percentage of the time just with all their history i'm often leading the turn if i like call with a flush draw on the flop out of position uh and i think this player will definitely be doing it some percent of the time it's hard to know you know without ever playing with them but i think we can definitely discount some 
some flushes when they check the turn. I don't think we can really take any combos out, you know, when they just call the flop, but I think when they when they check the turn, they could take a decent amount of combos out of their range. Hmm. I don't know if I agree. I think that it's very likely for us to barrel, or sorry, as us, when I say when I say us, I'm talking about David. Uh, when I, I think it's very likely that David's going to bet the turn here, and I think because of that, it makes a lot of sense for, for Villain to check here, and I think Villain will know that. If, like we said, this is a great barreling card, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think that that will be clear to the Villain. And I think, I think he, the Villain is probably leading out a lot of turns on flushes where uh, maybe he called a continuation bet on the flop. Yeah. That seems like a very laggy thing to do. When I mean, you know, I mean, I've, I've obviously already made my case against why using terms like laggy isn't a very good idea. But I think a lot of people who get that billing of laggy will do that. But I think on a board like this where you got uh, raise on the flop and then the flush came in and you're holding the flush, you're going to feel pretty good about checking and either raising uh, or calling and then maybe doing the same play on the river. Yeah, and I think if that's the case, it definitely it definitely makes a better case to not three-barrel a blank. Uh, you know, if he's, if he's slow playing the vast majority of his flushes, I think then we might not necessarily have a profitable triple barrel. But I guess we kind of might just have to agree to disagree on this one, and I think that he's probably leading out a fair percentage of the time on the turn or the river. Mm, well, I mean, I, agree, I, I do agree that he could lead out on the river, uh, especially with the nut flush draw, or with the now nut flush. Yeah. Uh, but I don't agree on the turn. Okay. Uh, but yeah, for for the reason we described at the beginning, I, I, I think a larger sizing is better here. Not necessarily to fold out, you know, kings or aces with the ace of clubs, uh, but to make the difference in folding out a pair of nines or a pair of tens. I think, you know, those types of hands call for like a half pot bet or some rare floats with like an ace king with the ace or king of clubs, then we'll be more likely to call or check raise versus uh, just folding. So I probably like a sizing of like 180, 190 here, maybe 200. I do agree with you, although for different reasons. Uh, I think betting small on the turn is better if Villain is going to check call a lot of flushes and then lead out on the river, because then when Villain does lead out on the river uh, and we don't make our straight, we can comfortably fold, and then when Villain does check to us, we can probably eliminate a fair amount of sets, or not sets, sorry, uh, flushes and feel good about a large river barrel to try and put a lot of pressure uh, on Villain's overpairs. Now, I, I do think there's something to be said for if Putting if they if you think that uh, for whatever reason this player will give even more credit to a larger turn sizing relative to the river sizing with those uh, overpairs and not maybe think that the small turn barrel the river uh, barrel thing. What I'm trying to say is that if you think this villain will think that a smaller turn barrel and larger river barrel uh, looks bluffy, then obviously don't do that. But I think it's likely. Uh, to be the best line against most villains, and you know, without any more information on this particular villain, I would, that's definitely the line I would take. Okay, 
So David might agree with you because he took a smaller turn sizing approach <laughs> and he bet 120 into 220 and then the villain called that bet. So now we're going to the river with $460 in the pot and it's the 10 of spades uh, and the big blind leads out 200 and David has 420 left in his stack. Uh, I mean, I think I would fold. Yeah, I think it's a pretty straightforward fold here. Uh, you know, this villain is up thousands of dollars, and like David said in the beginning, this villain does not bluff enough when he's up. It's almost impossible for the villain to have, like, complete air in this spot. It kind of mm. has to be, like, a weird ace-king offsuit float with an ace or king of clubs that he's turning into uh, a bluff here. But I think more likely it's just, you know, a value bet, and we're losing to all of his value bets. And he's not bluffing enough, so even getting three to one, I think this is a is a pretty easy fold. Yeah, I agree. I, I just don't think you know, we talked about he he just doesn't have uh, very many unpaired draws on on the turn. You know, this one class of hands that I think could play this way would be uh, hands like fives, sixes. Eights with a club. Oh, he has the eight of clubs. David has the eight yeah. of clubs. Well, not eights with the eight of clubs. Uh, I could see sixes with the six of clubs somehow feeling roped into, you know, finding their way to this river spot and deciding to turn their hand into a bluff. But I think it's it's pretty unlikely. Uh, I think that type of hand might also just be hoping to get a check behind. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely a non-zero percentage when you're playing with, like, a really loose player like this, but I think it's it's definitely pretty unlikely. I think yeah. this villain's folding those pairs, you know, fairly often on the flop and then fairly often on the turn. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So, I, I think it's, it's a fold. And so the interesting thing is just to think about, you know, if villain checked, are we checking back here? Hmm. Because uh, David writes in that he's you know more than happy to check back his top pair here, but I think that we're almost never good when we check that back. Yeah, in this spot, I think like the one type of hand would be like a like a jack nine queen nine suited hand. Uh, but besides that, we're definitely definitely losing. And I and I think uh, you know we have four hundred twenty left in the stack, and the pot's four sixty. Uh, you know, with my read that uh, we can discount some decent percentage of his flushes because he didn't lead out on the turn of the river. I like kind of just like firing the clip, going all in for about a pot size bet, and putting maximum pressure on all of his overpairs. Yeah, which I think is the biggest part of his range when he gets to the river with this action. I agree. I don't like a check back here. Uh, I think there's just a lot of value in sticking it in and putting the ultimate pressure on those overpairs. Yeah, so I think you played the hand really well, David. Uh, what What did he, did he fold it? Yeah, sorry, he folded. <laughs> okay. Uh, he folded. Uh, I personally would have gone with a little bit of a larger sizing on the turn uh, and then had more of like a three-quarters pot bet on the river. But uh, I guess he kind of took the, the line you would take. Yeah, when I said a smaller sizing, I don't think I had the stack-to-pot ratio uh, correct in my head. I do think 120 is a little bit too small. I think I would have gone close to 150, and I still think that gives us a lot of room to work with on the river barrel, uh, which is what's most important. But I do think that 
we should try and apply some pressure on the turn. I don't think 120 applies enough pressure uh, against any type of one pair hand that we'd like to fold. You know, like an ace a naked or an ace nine with no clubs is it, that's the type of hand that we would you know hope maybe folds the turn. And I don't think 120 is going to fold that hand out very often at all. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing in, David. Well played. And he wrote with results saying that Villain had 9-10. And obviously this is allegedly. Uh, so take it for what you will. But I, I think that makes a lot of sense with the way Villain played the hand. And I think it also makes kind of a good retroactive case for the larger sizing on the turn. I mm-hmm. think that's a hand that will fold a very high percent of the time to about like 190, 200 and call a very high percent of the time to about like 120. Yeah. And the the river leadout is kind of consistent with that. Well, thank you all again for tuning in, and thank you again, David, for writing us. Well, keep writing in to us. Zach and I are planning to post some of the hands that don't make it out of the show but are still interesting and worthy of analysis and discussion uh, in the strategy blog on our website. So look out for that, and... Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Just Hands Poker, and keep tuning in, and we look forward to hearing more from you. All right, thanks again, and we'll see you next week.